We're reading out of 1 Corinthians 10, 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the grounds of conscience. For the earth is of the Lord, is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, <coughs> this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink, or whether or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Our Father, thank you for speaking to us through your word and through Jesus, who is the radiance of your glory and the exact imprint of your nature. Holy Spirit, would you speak to us through Davy to our hearts so that we may be imitators of Christ? Amen. You can set that down. Thanks, Jeff. It's always a pleasure to have you guys with us this morning. As Trent just read, we'll be spending uh, the rest of our time uh, in an, an amazing passage today of 1 Corinthians 23, or 10, 23 through 11. So life is full of decisions. We are bombarded every single day with choice upon choice upon choice. Do I want to push that snooze button one more time? Or maybe two more times this morning. What am I going to wear? Am I going to take a shower? Or am I just going to put some dry shampoo in my hair and call it good? What am I going to eat for breakfast? Or for me, am I going to eat breakfast? Or if you have kids, what am I going to make my kids for breakfast? Do we have time to get all the lunches together? Should I go to class? Should I say hi to that person that I'm walking right past on the street and I know, but instead I just want to maybe look away? Should I spend quiet time with Jesus this morning? Should I go to the gym? These are all questions that we could ask by 9 a.m. in the morning. So how many decisions do we actually make in a day? There's been studies done on this, and it's estimated that the average adult makes 35,000 semi-conscious decisions every day. 35,000. That's 1,450 decisions an hour, and... That's including even the hours when we sleep. 24 decisions a minute. And estimators at Cornell University actually estimate that we spend 226.7 decisions a day just on food alone. And I'm probably like higher. I'm probably like four or 500 on that. See, life is full of decisions. And this morning, we're going to be processing through to the decisions we make in life. Yet this morning is not as much, are we making good or bad decisions, but who are we making decisions for? Who are we making decisions for? 
Today, Paul shares with us two guiding principles on how to make decisions in the Christian life. And then the last little bit we look at is how we actually have the power to live this out. So on the screen and also in your bulletin, uh, you kind of have our roadmap for today. And we're going to look at his two guiding principles. One is to live for the good of others, which is going to be in 23 through 30. And then the second principle is to live for the glory of God in 31 through 33. And then really asking that question, the last verse or the first verse of chapter 11, where do we get the power to actually live this way? So to live for the good of others. I'm going to read 23 through 30 one more time. This is Paul, and he says, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, pretty much he's saying if you choose to go, Eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you, and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be be determined by somebody else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So if you guys have been with us for the last three or four weeks. Um, this first section probably seems like summary for the most part. And I would say if you haven't been here the last three or four weeks, go back online and listen to uh, the various podcasts, the various sermons, because it gives the overarching argument that Paul is just continuing to kind of summarize in this passage. Paul reiterates the first kind of important principle for how we go about the decisions we make in life. And that's in verse 24, where he says, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. It's the whole, all things are lawful, but is it helpful? But does it build up? And so that's the lens in which he calls us to look at life, to say, am I, am I building people up? Am I helping people? Am I living for others? And then he goes on to kind of show how this plays out in two different scenarios. Both of these scenarios are applying it to food. And the first situation, he, he goes, okay, so there's, you're invited to somebody's house. And they, they don't know Jesus. They're not a follower of Jesus. What does he say to do? He says, what's, what's placed before you? Eat. Take that meat and eat it. He says, don't cause a fuss about the meat placed before you. We have the freedom to partake, so we're not going to try to offend that person. We eat for the sake of that individual. And then he reverses it, and he says, well, okay, what if there's this someone which that's debated on who the someone is, but the idea behind it is the same. He says, if there's a someone that says, hey, that meat was sacrificed to idols, you probably shouldn't eat that. Then he says, for the sake of that individual, don't eat the meat. He's saying, again, you have the freedom to eat it, but for the sake of that other person, for the good of that other person, he says, withhold. As one commentator puts it, he said, in essence, this is not a loss of freedom, but it's a proper use of freedom to do whatever is best for the other in a given situation. So therefore, he's saying, in, when, in situations where we have Christian liberties, where we have the choice, say, I can do it, or I don't need to do it. I can partake, or I can not partake. The criteria we ought to use for whether we do or don't is asking the question, is it good for my neighbor? 
Does it bring benefit to them? Does it help them? And so as I started to think through this passage, and I thought, okay, what's application? What does this mean for us today? My mind immediately went to that question of, okay, well, how do we live for the good of our neighbors? Yet as I started processing through that in my life, and even thinking through it with people in my life, if we were to have a whiteboard up here, and I were to start saying, hey, just kind of popcorn to me ideas of how we can best live for the good of our neighbors— I think we would generate a pretty solid list, and we'd do it pretty quickly. But if we started to then sit down and look at that list, and to really okay, say, well, what, if, what on that list am I actually doing? It'd be a rather humbling experience. You see, for many of us, the issue isn't, well, I don't know how to love my neighbors. I don't know how to live for my neighbors. It's rather that I know, and I just don't do it. The struggle for us is at the end of the day, it's easier, oftentimes it feels more pleasurable to live for ourselves and our benefit versus the benefit and selflessness that leads to helping others. It's much easier to say, I do or I don't want to eat that meat, and it's all my opinion and my voice, not necessarily for the benefit of the person. You see, the problem isn't it doesn't sound good to us. So when push comes to shove, we say, oh, I want for the good of me. So how do we move forward? If it's not a knowing what to do, then it has to start being this internal, well, who am I? How do we move forward? We'll start living for the good of others. When we actually get more joy and satisfaction out of seeing the other person benefited out of seeing joy come into somebody else's life that doesn't have to do with me? Like, how different would your day look, my day look, if I went throughout it being like, hey, how can I bless people today? How can I bring joy to this person's life? How can I bring satisfaction? And that's whether I'm having a good day or a bad day. It happens when we take the gaze off ourselves. It ultimately begins when I say, I can care more about them in this moment than I care about myself. That's the way we move forward. I think of the countless early mornings, rainy Oregon falls where it's 35 degrees and raining, that my parents sat in the cold and the wind and the rain to watch me and my siblings play soccer because they loved us, and they loved to see the joy that we got from playing soccer. Or I think of the countless times I spend with my daughter Ivy, she's eight months old, and it's me stacking little blocks to have her knock it down to just redo and do it over and over, and she won't even let me get to the top before she knocks it down. I can spend an hour doing that. It's not like I get anything out of stacking blocks and being humiliated by an eight-month-old uh, eight knocking it down. But it's to see the joy, the smile, the giggles that comes onto her face. You see, it's showing up to your friend's event or activity that they're putting on, because you know it means a lot to them for you to actually show up and to be present and to say, hey, I validate what's going on. It's the hard and emotional process of rejoicing with your friends when they get pregnant and getting to take newborn photos and getting to help set up the nursery while you're struggling to conceive. It's doing things for others instead of saying, hey, I'm going to fight for my own freedom. It's when we give somebody standing on the street corner an acknowledgement that they're a human being 
just like us. It's ultimately looking at our Christian liberty, the things that we can or cannot do, that we can partake in, and consciously saying, I'm living for their joy. I'm living for their betterment in this moment. So I want us to practically take a moment and to think through this week, this coming week that you have. What is one way you can tangibly live for someone other than yourself this week? Maybe it's a specific person. Maybe it's a specific situation. But the aim is to actually do something. See, again, every day we make decisions. And yet most of those decisions that I even mentioned in our intro has to do with myself. What if those questions started to orient around others? See, it's a pretty obvious statement. But we'll never live for others if we don't ever do anything for others. So the, the call, the urge, the aim is we got to go forth and do something. This week, think through who is somebody I can reach out to for the sake of benefiting them. And this first principle, this living for others, naturally flows into Paul's second statement. Because Paul kind of reveals the parameters of what is good for the other. Paul is by no means saying, hey, well, to live for the good of others, that means I can just do whatever I want that's going to benefit them. But no, he, he directs us to say, it's not that, hey, anything under the sun, but it's what is actually good for the other person. And Paul ultimately states, to effectively live for others, we are to live for God's glory. And the beauty is, as I begin to live for God's glory, I can't be living for myself. So verses 31 through 33 pick up this idea. And Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. So Paul begins to expand upon this topic. He starts by saying, hey, whether you eat or drink, which is just trying to correlate to what he just spoke about and has been speaking about for the last three chapters, and then broadens it out to say, not only whether you eat or drink, but in everything we do, God's glory is the focus. In this context, he's saying, hey, when we have the freedom to make our personal choices, this is the metric in which we evaluate our life and actions. Do what I'm doing bring, does what I'm doing bring glory to God? Does it seek the good of others? And then Paul continues to say, hey, we're also called to give no offense to anyone. And he says, the Jews, the unbeliever, the fellow believers, he's hitting the whole board, everybody. We are not to give offense to. But it's also important to note that this don't give offense, which I can guarantee this is like what our culture lives for. We don't want to offend anybody, and so we just kind of huddle up in a ball and hope we don't get touched. But he's, the, the, the give no offense does not as much mean don't hurt somebody's feelings as to don't behave in a way that prevents someone from hearing the gospel. Don't behave in a way that alienates someone who is already a brother or a sister in Christ. You see, Paul, Paul ultimately is saying, hey, I'm a people pleaser. He says, I do, I do everything to benefit the other. Yet, Paul's people pleasing looks very different than ours. 
You see, for the majority of us, and I definitely fit into this category, our aim is to adapt and to change for the sake of being liked. Our end goal is for their approval. On the strength finders test, I'm a woo, which is a really weird word, but it's really like I woo people to myself. And ultimately, I'm like, oh, this is terrifying because this is what people-pleasing is all about, is I'm trying to be somebody for you in this moment so that I can sense your approval. I can be liked. I'll adapt to that. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, so often when it comes to the people-pleasing we do in life, it's probably more at an expense of the gospel than to benefit it. I think of the moments in my life where I don't want to offend somebody, so I just stay quiet. I, I put my Bible away from where I'm reading it. I, I stay silent in moments where maybe I should be more vocal because I don't want to offend. But in my not offending, I'm actually offending the creator of the universe. Am I giving glory to God in that moment? See, Paul's end goal is so different than ours when it comes to this idea of pleasing people. Because his desire to please people, he says, is not seeking his own advantage. Not seeking his own advantage, but that they may be saved. That they may be saved. He could care less about any benefit that it brings to him. Like, how profound a statement. When he goes through his day, it's not, hey, I want this person to like me, but it's, hey, I want this person to see the gospel, to hear the gospel, to experience Jesus. He pleases people for their salvation, which in turn glorifies God. And you're probably noticing both of these principles that Paul lays out in the end of this chapter really flow into one another. To live for God's glory in all that we do naturally leads to loving our neighbors. To do one will result in the other. And it really seems like Paul's just kind of taking the, the preaching and teaching of Jesus and showing, hey, this is how it practically lives out. I mean, in Matthew 22, we probably have all heard this story before where a man comes to Jesus and says, hey, what are the greatest commandments? And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul's saying this is how that practically looks. He's ultimately calling us to live the glorious life. And it's interesting to note that in both of these principles, it has nothing to do with ourselves. It has nothing to do with my betterment, but it has everything to do with God's glory for the betterment of people. And that's the rub. It's hard to change our focus from ourself to him, to others. And this leads to two questions. The first question is, how do we actually live for the glory of God? And not just in the simple spiritual stuff, of, oh, well, I read my Bible. Oh, I, I pray. I show up on Sunday mornings. But what does it look like in the classroom? What does it look like in our jobs? What does it look like when we interact with our friends? You see, we are image bearers of God, created in his image. Therefore, our job is to mirror and mimic what he is like in the world. So we glorify God by making the invisible God visible through what we do and how we do it. Through what we do and how we do it. So what do we do? 
In Colossians 3, 23, Paul again says, he says, whatever you do, work heartedly as for the Lord and not for men. Whatever we do, work for the Lord and not for men. So we need to be thinking through those categories. What we say, what we do, what we watch, is that glorifying to God? Or sometimes I think we can struggle with the question of, okay, does this bring glory to God? It's hard for us to wrap our minds around this. And sometimes it's just easier to ask the inverse. Does what I'm doing right now not bring glory to God? Does it actually go against what God calls me to do? Does my language bring glory to God? Does what I say about others to their face or behind their back bring glory to God? How about what I watch on TV? How I spend my money? How I spend my time? What I do with my significant other in front of people and behind closed doors? How I treat my kids? How I take my take-home tests? And how I interact in my job with my ethics? You see, what we do matters. And what if it's not honoring God? He's calling us to shift our minds. Where it's better to just push that out of our life for the sake of God's glory and really for the sake of others. We need to take an inventory in our life and really wrestle with those questions that I just asked. It's been a hard week for me to think through what are the areas of my life that I'm like, nope, I don't have to think about that. That probably doesn't bring glory to God. That show... Nope, there's no benefit to it for my soul or ultimately for God. And it's having to make that conscious decision for the sake of God's glory. I'll turn it off. But we have to realize that his glory is worth it to actually make that step. And so how do we do it? If our job is to mirror and mimic God to the people around us, you see, we are Christians. We're many Christ. We're called to imitate him. So we have to strive to embrace the character of Christ and who he is and what he has done. In a book by John Mark Comer called Garden City, um, he's speaking specifically of the content, uh, context of work and how do we work for the glory of God. And he says this. He says, God is hardworking, so we should be hardworking. God is joyful and eager and proactive, so we should be cheerful and show up 10 minutes early to our shift and volunteer when something difficult needs to be done. God is honest and true, so we should be full of integrity, even when it means less money or no promotion. Because we're made in the image of God, here to make the invisible God visible, you're the priest of your office, of your classroom, of your home, of your job site. You are God's representative. So how we do it is, again, looking to the person of Christ. It's to know God, which means we, we need to spend more time with him. If I never open the very words that God gave me, how am I actually going to know him? The call is to get into scripture, and as we do, is to ask the question, who is God? And then how do I live in light of that? God is on every single page here. We want to spend time soaking that in. And then the second question, what kind of people pleaser are you? What kind of people pleaser are you? Are you a selfish pleaser? 
And that sounds kind of counter, selfish, yet I'm trying to please. Boils to me, am I living to please people to validate myself? Do I even do good things, but it's ultimately because it makes me feel good inside and feel like I'm a pretty decent human being? Or am I a gospel pleaser? Am I living to please others for the sake of their salvation? Which I argue is actually the greatest good you can ever do for that individual. Are we living in such a way that doesn't hinder people from the gospel, but actually points them to it? Again, how different would our life look? If we stopped trying to be liked by others and just started living for their salvation, started living with the gospel in mind. Through our midweek a few months ago, and kind of through a lot of our sermons, this idea of gospel fluency has continually came up. And that's really what this is calling us to, is as we shift from selfish pleasing to gospel pleasing, it's thinking in the context where in my lens in which I look at life, I look at it through the gospel. And to say, I think, breathe, eat gospel in all that I do, it's thinking through that. But once again, it means knowing this. We can't think in the context of the gospel if we don't know the gospel. The call is to embrace the words that Jesus proclaims. And as we get to the end of these two principles, you're probably asking the question of how. How do I actually live this way? Because if you're like me, you're saying, well, I, I know how to live for the good of my neighbors. I know what I should do. I mean, I think I can even have a pretty decent list of how to live for the glory of God. I know specific things I shouldn't do in my life and certain things I should do more of in my life. But I'm still not doing it. It's really hard. I have the best intentions, but I fail in this category. You see, Paul in this last statement, I think, gets at the heart of that and shows us, hey, this is where the power comes from to actually live this out. In chapter 11, verse 1, he says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul is saying, you want to know how to live this life? Imitate me, because I'm actually living this life. But ultimately, Paul is saying, hey, you can imitate me because I'm imitating Christ. Because I'm ultimately looking to Christ day in and day out and saying, that's who I'm going to follow. That's who I'm going to have my life look like. See, the beauty is Paul is in the middle of the sentence. Imitate me, Paul, as I imitate Christ. He is not the end. You see, Christ is at the end because Christ is the ultimate focus. So where do I get this power? We get it from Christ. Christ is the fundamental way to change our life. It's in knowing who our Savior is and ultimately imitating him in all that we do. And Christ is the ultimate figure for this. Because for one, he's, he's a perfect example of what this life lived actually looks like. For Jesus perfectly lived for the good of others. He brought value and significance to women in a unique and amazing way in the first century. He invited and welcomed outcasts, those that were cast out of the society. And he said, hey, you are welcome in my kingdom. Even those, when he challenged the religious elite, it was to point them to the heirs in their way that they may have life through the gospel, through the kingdom of God. We see that Jesus perfectly lived for the glory of God. 
where he lived out the fullness of the law in every aspect of his life. He was a man that lived free of sin. He proclaimed the kingdom of God to all peoples. He didn't say, oh, I'm just going to tell it to you or you. But he said, everybody, I'm going to tell about the kingdom of God because it is good news for all people. And he constantly proclaimed and pointed people to his father. He forgave sins and brought people into the kingdom. And then in the climax of the life of Jesus, we see the meshing of the good for your neighbor, the good for other, and the glory of God through the cross of Christ. Where he said, for my father's glory and for the sake of the souls of these people, I'm going to go to the cross on their behalf that they may be made right with God. That they may be brought into union with him where they may bring glory to the God of the universe. Yet the beauty is Jesus is not just an example of how to live. Rather, he's the very transformative power that makes it possible for us to live for God's glory and for the good of others. He has conformed us to himself. And we're told time and time again throughout scripture about this transforming power that Christ has bestowed upon us. I'm going to blaze through these, but we're going to have a list on the screen of just a few of the verses throughout scripture that talk about this. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Galatians 2, 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Colossians 3, 3, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have received from God, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Ephesians 5, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Romans 6, but know that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. And lastly, lastly, Ephesians 4, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. You see, it's Christ that has transformed us. It's Christ's transforming power that actually gives us the ability to live for others and to live for the glory of God. We cannot do it without him. And so upon a saving relationship with Jesus, our desires and view of a good life should look different. Our desires, our passions, our, our motives should be changed. So the question, whether you came to know Jesus when you were four years old, or whether you came to know Jesus two weeks ago, have your desires actually changed? It's not just saying, hey, it's a new self, but do you actually feel like a new self, transformed? In one of John Piper's books called Brothers, We Are Not Professionals, he really wrestles with this question. It's wrestling with the question of what's the bottom, the decisive foundation 
of our happiness. And it's, it's going to be on the screen. It's a fairly long quote, but throughout this week, it's struck me and challenged me in many ways. And he says, millions of nominal Christians have never experienced a fundamental alteration of the foundation of happiness. Instead, they have absorbed the notion that becoming Christian means turning to Jesus to get what you always wanted before you were born again. So if you wanted wealth, you stopped depending on yourself for it, and by prayer and faith and obedience, you depend on Jesus for wealth. If you wanted to be healthy, you turn from mere human cares to Jesus as a source of your health. If you wanted to escape the pain of hell, you just turn to Jesus for escape. If you want to have a happy marriage, you come to Jesus for help. If you wanted peace of conscience and freedom from guilty feelings, you turn to Jesus for these things. In other words, to become a Christian in this way of seeing things is to have all the same desires you had as an unregenerate person. You only get them from a new source, Jesus. And he's so loving when you do it. But there's no change at the bottom of your heart, of your cravings. No change at the bottom of what makes you happy. There's no change in the decisive foundation of your joy. You just shop at a new store. And that's what the new birth is. It's not having the same desires as an unregenerate person, but just getting them from a new source. The new birth changes the bottom, the root, the foundation of what makes us happy. Self at the bottom is replaced by Jesus, God himself. What makes born-again people glad is not that at the bottom they have God's gifts, but that they have God. So do our desires look different? Or do I need to wrestle with who God actually is in my life? You see, Jesus is the end in itself. It's not Jesus to get a significant other. Jesus to get that promotion. Jesus to get that happy life. It's not Jesus plus something equals the glorious life. Rather, it's Jesus plus nothing equals the glorious life. He is everything. See, we have the power to live this way by the transformative relationship we have with Jesus and ultimately by imitating him. In reality, we're all imitating someone. The question is, who are you imitating? You see, we, we wear what we wear so often because someone we think is stylish wore that kind of outfit. I don't know how much money I've spent on clothes and hats and shoes because somebody I thought was cooler than me wore it, only to put it on and be like, I don't even look like him. Sweet. <laughs> you see, we edit our Instagram photos to the point that they look nothing like the original photo we took, but it's because we want to fit in with what the world says it should look like. We do certain activities because the cool kids do them. Because I want to be like them, so I'll go partake in that style of life. We read certain books and watch certain shows because the influential people watch those shows, read those books. Maybe even for us, we have the major we have because someone we look up to in life has that major. My first decision when I was at Oregon State to be a CEM was because of somebody I looked up to. I was in there for like five weeks and I was like, this is stupid. And got out. But that's the life we live. We just say, I want to be like you, so I'm going to follow. It doesn't even matter if it's for my benefit or it doesn't even matter for the benefit of others. Or maybe we read every mom blog out there to try to be that perfect, picturesque parent. 
Or most of us sports junkies, we've probably at one point in our life been like, hey, I'm going to copy so-and-so swing or shot because if I swing the bat like them or shoot like them, I'm going to play like them, obviously, because that's how it works. Or for all of us homemakers out there, maybe we're all trying to be the next Joanna Gaines, and we look in every room, we're like, we need to go open concept, okay? We need to knock out that wall, and then we go to Target, and we buy everything in the Magnolia section. You see, we're all trying to imitate somebody or something. We're so prone to imitation. And how you are living reveals who you are imitating. And who you want to be and who you imitate ultimately will shape your life. So who are you imitating? Are you imitating something that gives you life? Or are you imitating something that you're always striving for and running after, but always coming up short? Is it draining you, or is it actually giving life? Are you imitating Christ? Or is Christ so low down on your imitation scale that you barely give him the time of day? He only gets a glimpse of your life on Sunday mornings or maybe some other night throughout the week. If we want to live for the good of others, if we want to live for the glory of God, who we emulate has, or imitate has to change. Our focus has to not be on us, but on Christ. Uh, we're going to conclude our time together a little different uh, than normal. I know a lot of you college students are in the middle of a midterm season right now, so I thought, you know, what better way to end than with a pop quiz? It's going to be a fill in the blank. But you don't need to panic, okay? There's not a right or wrong answer. This is your graded on your honesty. It's a fill in the blank, and it's this. Imitate me as I imitate blank. Imitate me as I try to become blank. Who is in that blank in your life? Or what is in that blank in your life? You imitate who you want to become. And in reality, if anything is in that blank, other than Christ, it's going to sound nice to live for the glory of God. It's going to sound nice to live for the good of others. But we won't. We just won't. Because ultimately, we're living for something else. We're pursuing something else. If Christ isn't that blank, we're living for ourselves and for our glory. We might tweak it and make it sound nice or make it look beautiful, but at the end of the day, we're living for ourselves and for our glory. But if Christ isn't that blank, and you actually desire to imitate him, then you're going to live for the glory of God. You're going to live for the good of your neighbor. You're going to live the glorious life. And the reality is we look at the world around us and everybody seems miserable. Yet God is calling us to something more. God is calling us to the happy life, the fulfilling life, the glorious life. We find that through imitating Christ. So may we be people who imitate him and imitate him with all that we are. Let's pray. Lord God, 
we are so thankful for your son. Because God, the reality is prior to a relationship with him, uh, my life was all about me and what I could get out of it. Um, and through experiencing the love Jesus has for us, through seeing Jesus live for others and live for your glory, um, I experienced a change in life. And God, I pray that that's true of us in this room, God, that we experience a change in who we are, our very makeup, be transformed by your goodness. Lord, may we be people who live for your good, live for the good of our neighbor, and ultimately live to bring glory to your name. God, and that starts with us imitating you. So Lord, I pray that this, this very day, we take inventory of our life. And we say, hey, what can I live without? What can I give up for the sake of following Christ more wholly? In your name, amen.